Welcome to Life Happens, where Texans come to protect their legacy and prepare for the second half of life. Join your host, Attorney Kim Hegwood with Hegwood Law Group and our weekly guest as we navigate the challenges that emerge as life happens. Now here's your host, Kim Hegwood. Good morning and welcome to Life Happens with me, Kim Hegwood, and our very special guest today is Barbara Carnes. Uh, Barbara is an RN and an internationally recognized author, speaker, and thought leader. And so we're going to talk about uh, end-of-life care. And so uh, in the and, and I love the, the topic of our show today, that people don't die like they do in the movies. And so that's a phrase that uh, you've used a lot over the years. Is that correct? I have, Kim. Thank you for having me here and for the opportunity to share knowledge with your group. Um, What I've learned in the years and years of working with End of Life is that people don't die like they do in the movies, but that's our role models. Unless you're at the bedside of someone who's dying, then the only role model you have is the movies and television. And of course, in the movies or television, someone says something very profound, and then they take a big gasp and they're dead. Um, And that's not how it happens. There's a process to dying, and that's what I want people to understand. Because when their loved one doesn't die, like the movies, then family thinks something pathological has happened. They think something bad is happening instead of understanding that dad's doing a good job and this is how people die. So how do you explain to people, you know, how how do people die? You know, I mean, I mean, if it's not like the movies, what do you tell them? Yeah, so if it's not like the movies, how is it? There's really just two ways to die. You either die gradual or fast. Fast is getting hit by a truck out here. Fast is a heart attack, it's suicide. You're alive one minute and dead the next. There isn't a lot to say about fast death, but gradual death has a process to it. And there's only two ways to die gradually, and that's a disease. Your body gets a disease, and um, and you die from that gradually. Or old age. Old age is your body just gets old. It wears out, it stops, and you're dead. So those Let's talk about gradual death. Not a lot to say about fast death. Gradual death has a process. And that process starts two, three, four months before death comes. And there are certain things that someone knowledgeable in end of life look for that say the process has begun. And You don't even have to tell me someone's diagnosis. I look for eating habits, sleeping habits, and withdrawal, and social ability. Those three things begin occurring months before death from disease. 
Then in the weeks before death, we have what I call labor, where we're really working hard to get out of our body. And then in the minutes to hours before death, most people are non-responsive. They're not saying something profound like in the movies. Um, they're non-responsive. And there's a lot of details that are going on at that time as well. So if you have people that are not able to be with their loved ones when they pass, you know, what do you say to them? Uh, particularly during the last three years with COVID, this has been a huge issue. And so what I recommend is let's say you're in Illinois and dad's in California and you can't get there, but you've been on the phone and family or whoever is telling you we're, we're talking days to hours. So one is you take the phone in California and you have someone hold that phone up to their ear and you talk and say everything that you would have said if you were there. Talk about the good times. Talk about the difficult times. The person who's dying is processing their life. They're saying well, on many levels, what have I done? Who have I touched? And so if each one of us who are close to that person talks to them from our heart, even though they're non-responsive, there's, there is a part of them that hears and understands. The other thing I recommend, because sometimes you can't have a phone and someone there, and that is Illinois, when dad's in California, you sit down in your favorite recliner, close your eyes, and picture, calm yourself first, and then picture your loved one who's dying in bed asleep and walk in in your mind walk to the bed and sit do what your heart tells you that may be you want to crawl in bed with them maybe you want to just hug them and hold them maybe you want to sit on the bed or in a chair in your mind you're doing this in your mind's eye and then you start talking to the person you love that's leaving and say everything that's in your heart that you need to say. And when you've done all that, then sit there in your mind's eye some more and see if anything else comes forward. And at some point, you're gonna know that you can open your eyes and you can move on. Thoughts are things. And so doesn't take the place of being there in person, but it is something we can do when we can't be there in person. Do you think it's harder for people not to be able to be there? You know, that when they're not being able to sit there and hold their hand and tell them all the things they want to tell them? Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I encourage when I am being the conductor of um, a dying process. And that's what whoever's at the bedside that is knowledgeable in end of life, 
what they are is like a conductor and everyone present there, um, this end of life conductor is trying to help all those people have a sacred experience. And so I suggest in the hours before death, and there's going to be signs that are going to tell me, I think we're talking hours. I think we're talking days to get each person there to go in alone and sit down and talk to the person that's dying. The person that's dying is not going to be talking back. They're going to be lying there breathing strangely, and they're going to be non-responsive. But I believe a part of them can hear. And what have we got to lose if they can't? We've got a lot to lose if they could hear and we don't say anything to them. So this is our last chance to say, I love you. I'm going to miss you. It's also our last chance to kind of clear up any situations in life. There's no perfect relationship. You know, there's good times and there's difficult times. And so you say, you know, dad, remember when I was 12 and you took me out behind the garage and you beat the tar out of me? You shouldn't have done that. I'm 60 years old, and that still hurts. We have the opportunity to help dad, who's processing his life on many levels, and it's the opportunity for us to clean the slate. Um, so it's very, very special time. And as a conductor, I'm going to try and get each person there to have their alone time to say their goodbye, to shed their tears. So we're having more, seem like we're having more and more people that are suffering as they're aging um, with dementia and things like that. Um, so I think another phrase of yours is that dementia doesn't play by the rules. <laughs> yeah, dementia doesn't play by the rules. Um, the rules I'm referring to are the three areas that I look for to tell me if a person has entered the dying process. Um, I don't even have to know someone's diagnosis. I'm going to ask what's their eating habits, what their sleeping habits, what are their withdrawal habits, like I said a little bit earlier. With dementia, those three things don't apply because withdrawal, social ability, a person can be with who has dementia can be withdrawn for years and not have entered the dying process. Sleeping more, you know, that's one of the signs of approaching death is a gradual increase in sleeping someone with dementia for years can be sleeping all the time. It doesn't apply. It isn't until a person's eating habits change and they're not taking in enough calories for maintenance that someone who has dementia will enter the dying process. Food is the gas we put in our car 
to make it run. And if the body's preparing to die, it doesn't want the energy. It doesn't want the grounding that food gives. And so all by itself, it will cut back and stop eating. With dementia, if you don't eat, you don't live. So that's your key. And when you decide not to have a feeding tube or do artificial feeding, then that person will gradually begin the dying process. My rule of thumb is always, always offer. Just don't force food. And a person with dementia will probably get to a place where they don't remember how to swallow. You know, they'll put the food in their mouth and they'll just hold it there. Or they'll start choking on the food. Don't force them. Gently try to give them a little food. Um, but that's the time that you know they've entered the dying process. I think that's the first time somebody's actually said that to me, you know, as far as dementia, you know, as far as determining, you know, the dying process. I mean, you know, it happens, but that's probably the first time I've actually heard somebody say that's the beginning. And so, but let's talk, let's kind of switch gears just a little bit. So, you know, we know that more and more people are opting for celebration of life rather than a funeral. I've had a bunch of clients that through their own celebration of life. <laughs> and so um, does a family plan these events, you know, in, in your life or does the person that's dying? I, I know in my practice, um, it's it's been the person that's dying that has wanted the celebration of life. And so uh, one of my clients did everything. She planned the entire thing. Uh, another one, the family did because, you know, the mom couldn't. So the family planned it so everybody could come spend time. And so when do you start thinking, you know, about, you know, planning that event or what should it look like? Or, you know, did we do it too early? <laughs> okay. It's, I think when we're doing our advanced directives, and everyone from 18 on should have advanced directives. As part of our advanced directives, that's really the time to say, I want, I want uh, a living celebration and I want to do it. Or I want a living celebration and I want my family to do it. That's the time to make those wishes known. Um, and who does it is going to depend on the personality of the person that wants it. Now, if the family wants it, but the patient doesn't, um, then you've got to respect the patient's wishes because they're top dog in this. I do want to say and this is just Barbara. <laughs> I think for all of us grievers, we who will grieve the loss of this special person, we need a funeral. We at least need a visitation. 
Now, visitations are becoming more and more passe. Nobody wants a visitation because it hurts. It hurts to see dad in a coffin. And that hurt that, oh my God, dad's really gone, begins our grieving process. And we want to avoid it. So it's, I don't want to see dad in a coffin. Um, but I think that it's really helpful in our grieving process. So I encourage that. Um, but today's um, mindset is, um, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have it. But at least have some kind of visitation or funeral following the death, even if you've had a celebration of life, because we, the survivors, need the closure that a visitation or a funeral brings. So I've told my kids that uh, there's going to be no viewing, you know, no viewing of my body. <laughs> it's like I've never, I've always wanted to remember someone, the, how I saw them. And I didn't want my last memory to be of them in the coffin, you know, so that was always my, you know, my preference. So would you tell somebody like me that it's better for the family to at least it, maybe the family to get to see you beforehand, even if other people don't? Absolutely. And, and I can understand, you know, I don't want people standing gawking at my body uh, in a coffin. So don't have a public visitation, have a private one. But when you have a private viewing, you still want to spend the money to dress the body, to have the makeup and the hair done. You want that cosmetic, cosmetic look anyway. So spend the money for that and let your family say goodbye one last time privately to your body. Now, I will say to you that when I'm with a family at the time of death, which is my goal and has always been my goal, you know, that's, that's, the the moment all everything i do before the death leads up to that moment and then everything after kind of gradually um moves off but when i'm with the family at the moment of death before in the hours as of, as i've already said i encourage everyone to go in say, and say goodbye when death has occurred before I call the funeral home, I go in and I tidy the body, I tidy the room, I put a small light on in the room, and then I encourage each individual to go in and to say goodbye to the body. This is your last time to say goodbye. And so I encourage each person, sometimes people go, oh, no, I don't want to do that. And I'll go in with them. I'll say, I'll come in with you. We'll stand there and I'll hold your hand and tell mom goodbye. One more time, tell her goodbye. And so I'll support them in that time. Then 
funeral home comes and I generally go in with the funeral home. And as they're taking the body and putting it uh, on the gurney, I'm going to tidy that bed. I'm going to make it and put a pillow on that bed and a sheet or bedspread and then something special. I look around, maybe I'm going to put a rosary, maybe a picture, uh, stuffed animals, flowers, something. Because what that room has become, the room that dad died in, has a memory. And I want that to be a sacred memory. I want when that body's gone and I'm gone, that family to walk by that room and go, oh, it'll be soft. It will be gentle. It won't hold the memory of dad's labor and struggle to get out of his body, but the sacred memory of a special moment in everyone's life. So you have a booklet called Gone From My Sight, The Dying Experience. Sold 35 million copies. Congratulations. Thank <laughs> That's <you>. phenomenal. <laughs> and, um, and so briefly, uh, and before we have to go today, tell me um, why'd you write it? Is it for families, professionals? And then uh, you can tell us how to get one. I wrote it for anyone who will read it. <laughs> <laughs> but how I wrote it, was um, I was a primary care nurse uh, working for hospice and I received, a th I was on call, got a three o'clock in the morning call and the most morning, three o'clock in the morning calls is because the family's frightened. Uh, not necessarily because there's something anybody can do, but they're frightened. And so if I don't roll out of bed and go, then I'm going to end up with that person in the emergency room in the morning. So I'm on an on-call call. Mom's in the bedroom. Um, she's in labor, but she's fine. And I'm in the living room with the family. And I'm explaining to them the signs of approaching death. I'm explaining to them that what mom's doing is normal, is natural, not like in the movies, but what's happening is normal. And one of the daughters was taking notes. And I thought, oh, what is wrong with this picture? She should not be taking notes. So that weekend, I sat in my living room. This is before computers had a yellow legal pad and a pencil. And I wrote what I wanted families to know about dying from disease or old age. So that when I wasn't there with them at three o'clock in the morning, they would have a resource, a simple fifth grade level, large print 13-page booklet that would guide them and show them that mom's doing what she's supposed to be doing. And so that's why I wrote it and when I wrote it. Awesome. That's a great story. And it is for anyone who has questions about end of life. 
you know, you cannot be dealing with end of life issues and read it and get an understanding of what dying is like for when you do need it. Or it's for families um, who are involved with someone uh, who is dying, has entered the dying process. It's also for professionals so that they understand the signs of approaching death and labor and all that goes with dying. Because most professionals view medical professionals, healthcare professionals view dying as a failure. We don't teach people how people die. We teach our medical people how to keep them alive. And so they don't know the normal natural process that death takes. And so that's what all of my education materials are about, is to show the natural, normal way that people die. Because everybody does. You know, our body is programmed to die. We begin dying the moment we're born. Um, So there's a process. And that's what I want to teach. So how do people find you if they'd like more information? They go to my website, which is Barbara, um, which is bkbooks.com. My web, my email is Barbara um, at, at bkbooks.com or call the office and talk to the girls, uh, which is which is on the screen. You can also Google me. And everything comes up there and you can touch base. But the key is go to the website, check me out, check all the materials. Perfect. I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been such good information um, as always. And so, and I look forward to spending some more time with you later on uh, some more topics. Oh, Kim, I would love that. You do such good work. Thank you very much for including me uh, in your message to others. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Life Happens with Kim Hegwood. Be sure to tune in every Thursday at 10 a.m. wherever you listen to your podcast as we navigate through the challenges that emerge as life happens. The content of this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship or constitute attorney-client privilege, legal, medical, financial, or any other professional advice. 